This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you thought the right wing was obsessed with gun rights, so-called gun rights, wait till you get a load of the next story where it's way worse than you realized. In order to talk about that, we're gonna bring in Ryan Bussey. He's a senior advisor at Giffords and an author of Gunfight. And he also used to work in the gun rights movement. Oh, That's interesting. Okay, so Ryan, welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, no problem. Before we get to the disastrous turn of events uh, that happened in the uh, Bruin case, which you're gonna explain to us, uh, and the absurdities that come out of it. Um, so what happened? Why'd you switch your mind on uh, so-called gun rights? I don't really think that I did change my mind. I mean, I'm still pro-gun, I own lots of guns and I shoot and hunt uh, with my family and I was just hunting yesterday. Um, what changed, I think, was the gun culture and culture of irresponsibility and radicalization within the gun industry. Um, it's become very, you know, exceedingly bad in the last 15, 18 years. I fought inside the industry to try to keep that from happening and then finally realized that I couldn't change it from the inside and am now trying to fight it from the outside, but I haven't changed. Okay, so I gotta spend a minute on that. Um, so. Our theory is that money in politics is what corrupts everything, right? And that because some polls have it at 97%, the lowest I've ever seen it is like 88% of Americans in favor of federal background checks. So, and including a majority of gun owners, including a majority of Republicans, including a majority of NRA members, etc. But yet we don't pass it. And and my theory is that's because Republican politicians are being paid by the NRA and and which is just a front group for gun manufacturers to drive up this radical agenda so that they'll sell more guns. Since you kind of worked on both sides of this, what's your take on that theory? Okay, so I'm gonna poke some holes in your theory. I think money, I think money helps construct this reality that we live in, but money is not the driving force behind it. It's very much like, it's very much like GOP Republican politics now. What the Republican or what the NRA did and what the firearms industry did is create a radicalized base that now controls everything very much like the MAGA base controls the Republican Party, right? It's no longer really about money. It's about a radicalized base of voters that will vote in block for one particular candidate. Well, that's the NRA perfected that prior to the GOP and the Republican Party doing that. So now the real power is from that radicalized single issue voter base that sways important Senate races and House races, congressional, you know, whatever kind of political race by a half point or a point, which is oftentimes what the margin is in these very tight races. Yeah, so let me ask you a question about the NRA. Do they get a lot of their funding from weapons manufacturers? Um, there is There is a flow of funding from firearms manufacturers, but again, most of the uh, most of the monetary the monetary juice of the NRA has always come from the base and from large donors. 
Um, it's not that the, the firearms manufacturers don't play a role, but they're not the leading role. And, and I kind of, again, I'm, I'm not trying to pick on you, but I, it's not really that the, the, the NRA is a tool of the firearms manufacturers. I found it to be exactly the opposite. I found that the NRA and the radicalized base led the firearms manufacturers, not the other way around. Um, and it ended up being a symbiotic relationship. But um, if there was a if there was an entity bossing anybody around, it was the NRA and the base bossing the manufacturers around. Yeah. So it, look, uh, I don't want to have to spend the whole time on that, uh, and I value your uh, thoughts on it. That's why I asked. So the last thing I'll say on it is my, my sense of it is that it's a vicious cycle, and that uh, the culture comes yeah. from somewhere, right? So do I agree with you that yeah. there's a culture there for sure? But it's the invisible hand of the market that usually creates the culture in all of the different yeah. markets. Yeah, you're right. It became a symbiotic relationship where it was good for the NRA to radicalize a base, and then that radicalized base was good for business, and then and then you had sort of a, a storm that fed itself, right? It just kept spinning. Yeah, a hundred percent. And every time a bad guy with a gun did a massacre, uh, you know, they would come out and say, "You need more guns. You need good guys with guns." And yeah. then, oh golly gee, oh we did we pass no laws to regulate guns? I guess bad guys have more guns. Oh, I guess good guys are going to need more okay. guns, and then on and on it goes. Everybody Bam. gets rich and I mean, everybody there, dies. There you have the formula. You pretty much enumerated it. Yeah. Yep. All right. So now they're about to make it worse, or they did. So tell us about the Supreme Court decision, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. versus Bruin. Yeah, so I'll back up just a bit. Um, 1934, we had the, I mean, people have heard of the Al Capone, the Chicago murders, the all of the bad stuff that went on with organized crime in the late 30s. From that arose a law called the National Firearms Act. And that law did some basic things that outlawed fully auto machine guns or heavily regulated them. Things like sawed off shotguns. Um, it instituted um, serial numbers on uh, federal mandate for serial numbers from manufacturers. So it instituted lots of federal laws. In 1939, five years after that, that law was challenged and it was upheld by the Supreme Court in a case called Miller. Miller established this long held balance of the way gun cases would be established for the next 80 years. And essentially it said, we're going, we will balance um, public safety with a, with a second amendment right. There's a balance there. Um, that, that balance held all the way up until Heller in 2008. And then the recent case Bruin that you just asked about. Bruin, which was decided in June of this year, completely 100% trashed that balance. It shredded, it really shredded the precedent in the same way that the Dobbs decision on abortion did a day later. What Bruin did, and Clarence Thomas wrote the opinion, it says from henceforth, the only way we're going to decide constitutionality on gun laws is if, with a historical standard, if a gun law existed in 1791, the year the second amendment was ratified, or 1868, the year the 14th amendment was ratified, then that gun law is likely to be constitutional. If it doesn't, if we didn't have a gun law like that in one of those years, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, then it's not going to be constitutional. Well, guess what didn't happen 200 years ago? Serial numbers on guns, domestic abusers being denied their rights because domestic abuse wasn't even against the law in 1791. It wasn't even understood to be anything that could be even close to illegal. Um, all sorts of background checks. We didn't have a criminal background check system. We didn't have a computerized background check system. Like I could go on and on and on with all of the things that that Bruin case now endangers. So Ryan, it's impossible not to ask, are people really this stupid? So whether it's Clarence Thomas or the other conservative justice that voted it the same way, I mean, 
really, they're gonna say, oh, because there's no computerized database back in 1791, ha ha ha, you can't track guns. Well, that's patently yeah. absurd. They, well, they don't see that that's patently absurd? So it is patently absurd, um, and I don't know. There are days when I think, oh my gosh, these people are just like Elon Musk. They got a hold of something, they have no freaking idea what they're doing. That's what I wanna hope. Um, and I hope that the Supreme Court, because all these cases now are racing their way up through. There's a Texas case the, that's already been um, adjudicated, right? Where the, the judge said, nope, domestic abusers, we have to allow them to buy guns because there was no law like that. Like it's already happening. There's a West Virginia case that outlawed serial numbers on guns. It's already, these things are already racing their way up through the lower courts. So we're going to soon find out whether they were that stupid or whether they were meaning meaning to do what they did because as those cases are gonna make it to the Supreme Court. We're not gonna wait 80 years for another Supreme Court case to, to reach the Supreme Court, right? And there and so we're going to, the rubber's gonna meet the road. We're gonna figure out, did they mean it? Were they serious? Were they thoughtful? Was this strategic or did they screw up? If they roll it back, which I hope they do and which all reasonable citizens should, then I think we can say, okay, they, they didn't know what the hell they did or Clarence Thomas hoodwinked them or whatever, but we don't know yet. So uh, there's another super interesting part of this, this conversation go for a long time uh, about how the justices are picked to be just that stupid. Um, so, and, and when I say that, I want the audience to understand, I don't think they're actually that stupid. I think that they're doing it on purpose because they wanna gut every gun law uh, that there is. and. If saying, hey, it had to exist in 1791 is a great way of making sure no laws pass. Because yes, all this technology didn't exist in 1791. Serial numbers, databases, the number of bullets they could put on a magazine. Oh, They couldn't fire 100 bullets at once. So that means they couldn't outlaw firing 30 or 100 bullets at once, yeah. right? And so- yeah, Circular logic, yeah. 100%. And so, and they could do that in a lot of different cases, and not just about guns. But how do these Supreme Court justices that are so purposely obtuse float to the top rather than the bottom? Well, two things. First, I think you hit on something, and I think this gun thing is actually at the forefront of the culture war that they're fighting. And they picked um, they picked this originalist meaning on guns because it's actually interwoven through so many of the other things that the culture war that we're gonna fight the culture war on and we have been fighting. So you had in in the in Miller, the previous gun case that ruled our lives for 80 years and our parents and our grandparents, you had this balance of responsibility for society's safety versus individual freedom, right? And it balanced that. Well, what so much so many on the right want to do is is disable that balance. They want to have individual freedoms mean everything, societal needs or collective freedoms mean nothing. Guns is the first place they're doing it, but it's also going to be very prevalent. Um, they picked this reasoning as they did in Dobbs because it's gonna be very prevalent in environmental cases, um, in public health cases, all of these things where we have to balance individual freedoms versus um, versus collective needs of society. Now, how they rose to the top, well, the right started signaling 25 years ago that this was very important, right? That, gun, that extremism in guns was very important. And so justices who were making their way up through the system started issuing decisions in cases 10, 15, 20 years ago to say, hey, hey, look at me, I'm gonna be really extreme on guns. A really good example, 2008, Brett Kavanaugh issued a dissent, a very notable dissent in a case when he was set on the circuit court in DC that espoused this originalist reasoning, the same thing that, that Thomas used in this case, he espoused it and said, it, it didn't decide the case, but it's his dissent was out there and it said, 
We shouldn't even use balance for anything. We should decide all gun cases based on this originalist 1791 thing. So when it came time to pick a very conservative judge, the Federalist Society, President Trump was there. The Federalist Society says, hey, pick this guy. He issued this dissent. He sent this signal up saying he was gonna be real extreme. Let's pick him. Same with the other two justices that Trump appointed. So Ryan, last thing is to come full circle here. I have a theory on that too. The Federal Society is a group of people who half of whom pretend to care about policy issues, etc. And philosophies and judicial principles. And the other half know that it's a joke, but they participate anyway. And it's also gets funding from corporate interests. And freedom and individualism just means deregulation of giant corporations. Uh, and that Kavanaugh and That's Gorsuch correct. were uh, largely picked because they both ruled in cases where they allowed corporations to kill their own employees. One was a truck driver case, yeah, the other that, was a SeaWorld I, case. I think you're exactly right. And there's no place to signal that better and more accepting to the right than a gun case when where you have this defined freedom in the Constitution. So they can stand up and say, hey, look, I'm going to use this originalist meaning and everybody in the legal community knows, wait, if we apply this originalist meaning, you know you know what else there wasn't in 1791? Rules against corporations dumping sludge in rivers. You know what I mean? Like it, it extends yeah. throughout the system. 100%, and that's exactly what they're going here. Uh, corporate rule uh, in, uh, disguises freedom. Um, and so watch out, that's coming towards uh, gun issues uh, that literally kills uh, a people in our communities on a daily basis, let alone everything else. All right, Ryan Bussey, author of Gunfight, really appreciate the conversation and your expertise on this. Hey, thanks for having me, appreciate you being interested. No problem. All right, let's do a really interesting autopsy of the Carrie Lake run in Arizona. Did she lose because she was extreme or did she lose for other reasons? And what does it portend for the Republican Party and American politics? To help us break it down is Isaac Stanley Becker. He wrote an interesting piece about it in the Washington Post. Isaac, welcome. Thanks for having me. No problem. So I think there's a couple of interesting things in your piece that are bigger than this story and I'm gonna come back to. But first, let's stay on Carrie Lake. So. She lost her race by 17,000 votes, as you explain in your article. But the state treasurer, I believe, for the Republicans, Kimberly E, outperformed her by 120,000 votes. So that pretty much, I've got an example of that just like that out of Georgia in the Herschel Walker versus Brian Kemp. But doesn't that pretty conclusively prove that the extreme candidates are clearly doing worse in the general elections for Republicans? I'm so glad that you mentioned this data point. When we came across this in the election results, we thought that this was just an amazing detail about Republican voters showing up to the polls, voting for at least some Republican candidates, but spurning those at the top of the ticket, in this case, whom they found to just be too extreme. And so I think that the point you make is apt here that there were policies that People found reason to support for Kimberly Yee, the candidate for state treasurer, who emphasized sort of pocketbook issues, financial literacy, fiscal discipline, but they did not want to vote for a candidate who denied the results of elections. Yeah, and in uh, in the case of Georgia, it was an eight and a half point difference between the 
voters who voted for Brian Kemp versus the ones that voted for Herschel Walker. So that eight and a half mm -hmm. points are obviously critical and cost the Republicans that Senate seat almost certainly. Mm -hmm. So there's two startling examples and, and it seems like that, that almost all the elections fit that pattern in the 2022 midterms. So there, that's why Republican politicians are in a full scale panic about uh, Trump. Uh, and, and we'll see how, obviously how that goes. But also, Isaac, it must be noted that the great majority of Republican voters are still voting for Carrie Lake and Herschel Walker, right? Well, we have to hold two things at the same time. You know, it's I, I think it's fascinating because it shows that in this moment of tribalism, party discipline, and when people will oftentimes, you know, vote for the candidate who has the D or the R next to their name, there are still voters who are making discerning choices about those candidates. At the same time, just as you say, still the overwhelming majority of Republican voters, Democratic voters are choosing just the candidate from that party and are not are not uh, you know departing or, or decamping. Um, and so it's really up to this this tiny portion of voters who are making the difference here. Yeah, I'll just quick editor's note here from my perspective is that whenever uh, we talk about extreme candidates on both sides, there in my opinion and factually speaking, there is no such thing at the national level. There's only extreme candidates on the Republican side. The so-called extreme candidates on the Democratic side are actually agree with the American people according to polling better than almost any politician does anywhere on the spectrum. So both sides do not do it. The Republicans have clear, obvious, preposterous radicals. The Democrats, if anything, are too conservative. That's my opinion. You don't have to bother responding to that. I know you're journalists. You'll say it's both sides, etc. Well, so we'll move on. Okay. So uh, now, uh, more amazing facts in your story. Um, so the reality is that it seems like Carrie Lake was a true believer, as you explained in the story. And don't we have to give her credit for that? I mean, this is kind of ironic. I think she's totally nuts, but I want to give her credit for being authentically nuts. So it, the Consultants come in, and then I want to talk about the implications of that. The consultants come in according to your piece, and I believe it. It's and that's why you're on. Is that and they come and tell her, soften up your stances. In the primaries, you're going to be pro-Trump. In the general election, you should be waver on that a little bit. Go grab some, you know, Republican-leaning independents, some of the reluctant Republicans, etc. But doesn't that show you? I'm going to go straight to the implication that that. Political consultants are generally full of crap and that they're all trained liars. Well, there were certainly people who were trying to convince Carrie Lake to make tactical decisions to appeal to centrist voters. I also thought it was quite interesting to learn that she, as one of our sources put it, didn't break frame even in more private one-on-one -on -one encounters. There were a raft of pieces, I think, throughout this cycle about candidates who would publicly say stop the steal and Trump won and so on and so forth, any variety of this of this false messaging, but then you know privately acknowledge that of course the election wasn't stolen. Even even other candidates in Arizona, I believe Blake Masters, my newspaper and others reported that friends of his said that he didn't believe this. But as far as we understand, Carrie Lake, even in those kind of private interactions, would hold fast to this to this false notion that Trump was cheated out of victory in 2020. I, of course, don't know what's in her head, what she truly believes, but this is at least the messaging that she maintained in those kind of private interactions away from the stage, away from the microphone. But 
But if you said, look, I, I can't stand Carrie Lake or Blake Masters, uh, and I would argue Carrie Lake is more unstable than Blake Masters. Blake Masters is more dangerous. That's an interesting conversation for another time. Uh, but if we're uh, talking about who, I don't know, who's more authentic, who we respect more, I don't know if that's a, a you know, the vernacular that makes sense in this context, but one person doesn't break frame, meaning she actually believes it. It wasn't for show. The other person is savvy enough to agree with the consultants that you should break the frame and give a new message during general election. I don't know. Is the the politician who's lying isn't he worse than the politician who isn't lying? Well, there's also a thematic takeaway here about the positions that Republican candidates are boxing themselves into in order to win primaries, and then the way that they're suffering as a result of that in the general election. Arizona is such an interesting example of this because of the small amount of time between the primary election in August and the general election in November. So these candidates adopt these positions to get through the gauntlet of the primary election, these pro-Trump positions. And you know, two months, three months, it's not enough time to shed this kind of baggage and be a chameleon and convince general election voters that you don't believe the election is stolen, that you don't believe abortion is demonic, so on and so forth. So I, I don't I don't know about judging between the candidates who are true believers and those who aren't, but I think what's what some of the results are also showing is that even for those who tried to pivot, who tried to uh, to moderate, it, it wasn't believable in the context of this cycle. Yeah, well, I mean, but that's what I'm getting at. It wasn't believable because it's not true. They never believed it in the first place. They were liars, and everybody in politics thinks like it's savvy to lie uh, and change your position between the primary and the general election. I don't think it's savvy. I think it's cheesy. I think it's terrible. Uh, and so, for whatever else you can say about Carrie Lake, and there's a lot of things you can say about Carrie Lake. At least she wasn't a liar. Uh, I mean, I mean, that's what's greatly ironic because her position is not true. Right, but she genuinely believes the lie, uh, as opposed to Blake Masters, who doesn't believe it at all and was doing it for power and and fame and all of that. All right, but I want to move on to a, a separate, a fascinating fact from the piece. You guys say that uh, that in her primary, uh, before she got to the general election, that being in favor of Trump, of course, helped. But not only that, taking controversial positions helped because it got her basically three hundred million dollars in free media or earned media, and her conservative. Rival within the Republican primary only got fifty million dollars in free media, which made me go, "Hmm, okay." That leads to two interesting conclusions. One is that's why you need to be controversial, and that's why you're seeing the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gates, the Kara Lakes doing what they're doing because it's getting them the most precious thing in politics: attention. Does that make sense? I think that's right. The campaign, the Carrie Lake campaign, was massively outspent by their rival in the primary, but they had this massive advantage in terms of earned media, free media, and it was a enormous asset for them. Yeah, so they're not, you know, we call them crazy, but strategically, that's not crazy at all. In fact, if you were, let's say that you're a sane Democrat, you're running in a primary against another Democrat, um, without Actually, doing anything that's counterfactual, lying, actually radical, like call for physical action, or etc. Shouldn't you be as controversial as you can be if you wanted to be strategically sound and get as much attention to your race as possible? 
I think there would certainly be local considerations about the district or the, or, or the specifics of the race. We saw again that it benefited Carrie Lake in the primary and she paid the price for it in the general election. So all those headlines, all those eyeballs about her more extreme positions may have generated enthusiasm and a sense of energy and momentum. But it also we've seen turned off a number of voters to go back to the initial point in our conversation. Some of those 120,000 voters who showed up to vote for the little known state treasurer candidate, but not in the governor's race. Yeah, it's a balancing act. But it leads to a second interesting conclusion, which is the media decides who wins. So here's what I mean by that. It's not that the Washington Post or the local Arizona local news station, etc. says, vote for this person and you and that is the correct decision. That's a different topic as to whether they say that subtly or not, right? In this case, what I'm just talking about is, well, if your spending is you know, 10, 20 million dollars on a race, but the free media is $300 million, well then the free media, the amount of media you get from however you run your race is so much more important to whether you're gonna get elected than the paid media that you're doing. It also certainly contributed to the national profile, again, to the sense of momentum. Traveling with the Carrie Lake campaign in the final days before the election, this genuinely did have the feel of a presidential style campaign. The crowds, the energy, even the security detail, the way that they were moving around, the media gaggle. And so there was a there was an additive effect there. That that was the perception. And so more and more media came and then that just contributed to it. So there was a there was a certain um, there was a certain uh, um, energy on the campaign, and um, it was it was unique. It, it had something different from other states and other races that drew not just national media but international media. This was something that was commented on by Steve Bannon when he appeared at the rallies in the closing days, and then the media flocking to that scene. I think just certainly uh, turbocharged that sense and allowed them to say, you know, look at look at the movement that we've created. Look at the attention and all eyes on Arizona. Yeah, Isaac, do you know how much Carrie Lake spent in the primary? Oh boy, those exact records I don't have at the tip of my tongue. I know that they were you know, massively outraised and outspent by their primary opponent, Karen Taylor Robeson, who really had the backing of the establishment, came from kind of the McCain wing of the party, you know, heavily backed by Doug Ducey. Uh, you know her own resources. You um, not to mention her own resources. So, uh, yeah, they certainly were at a financial disadvantage. So, Isaac, it, my point being that if uh, they, she got three hundred dollars, three hundred million dollars of free media in just the primary, that that probably dwarfed what she spent in paid media by ten to twenty fold, roughly speaking. Is that fair? I think that's a I think that's a fair estimate. Though I should say that 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 number was a kind of raw estimate of an advisor, a senior advisor, someone who knew what they were talking about. But it was an after the fact kind of back back of the napkin math. It wasn't something that they yeah. had, you know pumped through Excel and had determined extremely rigorously. Yeah, no, I I hear you, and we're talking about big broad ranges here. And so mm-hmm. in the big picture, though. It does appear for better or for worse, and in the primaries, sometimes for the better, and in general, sometimes for the worse. The reaction you get out of media decides the election. And so I, that's a, a phenomenon not often talked about by the media. 
And so mm -hmm. that is that's interesting. And you saw it in the Kerry Lake election, and and it worked for her in the primary, and then she lost in the general mm -hmm. election because of it. So it's something to keep an eye on, no matter what happens to Carrie Lake. And of course, you in the piece talk about how she might be VP. I've been saying that for a long time. She's got Trump VP written all over her. If Trump makes it all the way to January in Iowa, we'll see. Okay, but uh, also yeah. depends on which media. I mean, so you had national news outlets, local TV stations following her closely on the trail. But you also saw not only in the primary, but into the general, her intense courtship of alternative media, right-wing media. Steve Bannon's radio show has become a kind of must uh, must um, attend, must go destination for candidates courting Trump's endorsement. You saw Steve Bannon advise her in the closing days of the election and then on into the post-election period when she was trying to figure out what to do with this loss. Not only Steve Bannon, but Floyd Brown, who runs the Western Journal, an outlet based out in Phoenix. So she cultivated and became part of a whole kind of alternative right wing media ecosystem, which was extremely important to her celebrity in that in that ecosystem. Yes, so you can use right wing media and mainstream media. And as long as you're not absolutely lunatic as Carrie Lake just barely apparently slipped over the edge, you will probably win. Because she only lost by 17,000 votes, only 17,000 votes. So a lot of people in Arizona saw that and was like, I don't know who else is running. I know she's running and she seems, you know, and apparently enough of them thought she was a, looked like a lovely person that she almost won. Um, so whether we like those phenomena or we don't, they are real and they're here. So Isaac Stanley Becker with a really great piece in the Washington Post about it. Thank you for joining us, we appreciate it. Thanks so much.